0: Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayrsdale. On this episode, we welcome Christina Cho. Christina is the creator of the Eat Cho Food blog and Instagram feed, as well as the hit cookbook Mooncakes and Milk Bread, which explores the traditions and techniques of Chinese baking, Um, It's particularly with a nod to Chinese bakeries around the United States, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the ones best known in San Francisco and Los Angeles, including Eastern Bakery, Phoenix Bakery, and what exactly they mean to both the communities that they serve, uh, particularly Chinese and Chinese American communities that they serve, and also the bigger California story, because they also touch everything from art to finance. In fact, uh, the founder of the... Uh, Phoenix Bakery in Los Angeles is also one of the founders of Cathay Bank, which you know revolutionized banking for the Chinese community in Los Angeles and you know by extension, uh, really California and the rest of the world in the 60s all from a bakery. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and also how Christina got to California. you know she's not a native Californian. she's from Cleveland originally, but she really discovered herself out here. In Northern California, in particular, she lives in Richmond, and um, it was a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot, not only about this food, about dumplings, about uh, steamed buns, about uh, coffee crunch cake, uh, and the like, but also about reconciling growing up Asian American in a place like Cleveland, Ohio, with the experience of being Asian American in a place like California. It's markedly different, and Christina had some really enlightening things to say about that. So I look forward to sharing that conversation with you. Before we get to that, I uh, just want to shout out quickly everyone who, um, you know, voted and endorsed the Hank the Tank bear flag that we posted at What California on Twitter. Uh, That was fun over the weekend, as you may have heard. There is a 500-pound black bear named Hank the Tank that was uh, targeted by local authorities in Tahoe for basically just breaking into people's houses and taking their food, Uh, according to the policies stipulated by the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, Hank was what's called a conflict bear, severely food habituated. But then they found out, well, there's not just one bear, but multiple bears who were doing this. So Hank is going to get a little bit of reprieve. He's not going to be captured, not going to be you know, moved, certainly not going to be euthanized. So that's good news. But I thought, you know, it's not just enough to know that Hank is off the hook. We really need to kind of uh, commemorate this legend of the Ursine species and give him a little bit of love in the kind of vexillological form in other words we need to make him a flag which is exactly what we did and uh by we i mean i i basically opened up photoshop and um and just got stupid so check that out what california you can also go ahead and subscribe to the substack newsletter we'll put that in the newsletter this week and uh, in the show notes for this podcast too i hope you get a kick out of that and um hope it was fun for you because it was certainly fun for me anyway uh love you hank never change. I mean, lose a few hundred pounds, get down to your ideal weight, but other than that, never change. Remember, you can always send me notes, any comments you got about the show to hello at whatiscalifornia.com. And uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get on with the conversation here with Christina Cho, the author of Mooncakes and Milk Bread, here on What is California? Enjoy. Christina Cho, welcome to What is California. It's so good to have you here. I want to talk about you and your work and your awesome new book. But first, let's talk about your California story. Are you from here originally? or if not, how and when did you arrive here?
1: Yeah, I am not originally from California. Um, I was actually born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, so like the opposite of California as much as you can be. Yeah, so I'm from I'm from like the Midwest. Um, and I first moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where I still live. I first moved here in, I think it was January 1st, uh, 2014. So I've been okay. here for a little over um, eight years now. So I guess like I feel a little bit more, I, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a California. At least my family considers me.
0: What part specifically of the Bay Area is home for you? San Francisco and I guess where in San Francisco?
1: So I lived in San Francisco for six years. I lived primarily in the inner Richmond neighborhood. And it gets confusing because now I live in Richmond, California, which is uh, considered the East Bay. So I'm right by Berkeley. It's kind of the uh, people know where Berkeley is. So right by there.
0: And so how did you determine when you came to California that you wanted to settle in the Bay Area?
1: I have always sort of maybe dreamed of living in California. And there was something about San Francisco that always was like appealing to me. Um, I had visited one time when I was in college for just like a week and I really loved, I think like just the combination of nature and city. And it didn't seem as maybe as overwhelming as LA to me personally. Like there was something really, calming about San Francisco that I felt like I was there surrounded by all this energy Mm. but at the same time I could breathe Um, and Mm. obviously there was like a lot of really wonderful Asian food that is kind of all over California but there was something about San Francisco that I was like I need to be here Um, I ended up coming out here for an internship I was in I was doing a master's program at an architecture school um, and I was there for one semester and we do like an on and off, like internship, come back to school on and off. But when I came out to the internship, I was like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm just staying here. So I ended up mm-hmm. dropping out of my master's program and just staying here.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's another very common thread among some of our guests. Like they just kind of came to California and said, why would I go back? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. This is fine. I'll just stay. Yeah. This is, this is good. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and I guess, you know, you said you've been here for about eight years, a little over eight years. In what ways? You know, well, of course, you're not you know, a lifetime Californian, a native Californian here, but that's still eight years is a long time. In what ways has California changed since you've been here? And I guess, how do you feel about those changes?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like around this time where it's still well, it's technically March 1st, but uh, it's kind of close to like the anniversary when I first moved here. So I kind of reflect on that time a lot. Um, I think it's a combination of me changing a lot because when I first moved out here, I was like 22. I was like very, very young. That was my first kind of steps into like adulthood and living on my own. Um, I feel like California in its essence is like still the same in terms of like having so much. Like, I felt like there was, like, so much potential here for me personally, growing my my own career and growing as a person. Like, I feel like that probably in terms of California will never change, having that feeling of freedom and opportunity. Um, in terms of, like, maybe actually living in the Bay Area, I feel like in the last couple of years, the city has felt um, – Maybe more overwhelming. I, I know when I first mm. moved here, I was like, I, I loved how I could breathe. But now when I live in the East Bay and I go into San Francisco, I feel a little like there's like so many cars, so many people.
0: Because I I, mean, I remember when I would go to San Francisco when I was younger, because I, I grew up in Northern California myself, you know, when I would go to San Francisco when I was younger, it felt the same. It felt expansive, um, you know, and you didn't feel that kind of, uh, I guess, pressure, you know, uh, or, or just kind of cl- closed in feeling that you might feel surrounded like you might in Los Angeles, San Francisco, even though it was a, a more dense city. Now, it definitely feels like things are a little more constricted in ways they didn't when I was younger. Anyway, I don't know if you relate to that.
1: Yeah, I totally feel that way. And I would say that that's in kind of like more specific areas of San Francisco. Like, I think that inner Richmond where I live for a long time still has that appeal and that feeling. Like, I was just there over the weekend. and I was like, oh, I love it here. It Like, I, I would live in this neighborhood forever if I could. Uh, But then right before that, I was just like downtown at the Ferry Building. I was like, get me out of here. I can't, (laughs) I cannot be here any longer. Uh, It was just, yeah, a little too much. So it kind of just depends on where you end up in the city.
0: Got it. So what is your earliest memory of California? And why do you think that memory has stuck with you?
1: I have a very vivid memory of just like my day two in san francisco slash california um the first day i flew out here as a full day of travel but by the time i got to like my craigslist house that i got a room in i was like super exhausted and just like used all my energy to kind of like get comfortable with my new roommates and on day two i woke up really really early because it was like that time switch. Like I was used to, used to like East Coast times. So I got up really early and the sky was just like so blue. And I lived in inner sunset and it was a straight shot. We lived on a house and I could see the ocean from my window. And I, wow. I was like, I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to like run to the ocean. I hate running. I do not run. I am not a runner. I have not I have not become a runner from that moment, but I was like I'm going to run to the ocean and I did it. I walked a lot, but like I did end up running to yeah, sure. to to Ocean Beach and I think I got like a sandwich or something out there on the beach and ate there and I'm just like I'm just so happy to be here and then I took the bus back because I was like I'm not
0: running. So California made you a runner and a public transit user all in the same day that's fantastic. In
1: one day and then since then I've maybe ran like five times in the last eight years that I've lived here so. I would call that a
0: positive influence.
1: (laughs) Yeah yeah but I was like this is California I'm gonna run I'm gonna be outside.
0: (laughs) Who are some Californians who have influenced or impacted you and who you are?
1: Yeah there's a few people and they kind of range in like I guess, like, notability. I don't know. Like, there's some people that in my life, like, I have a lot of mentors from um, working in architecture. So that's not what I work in now. I work in food, obviously. But there's, like, a few mentors that stick out to me that just uh, apply to how I want to continue working and being a professional person, and then uh, there's kind of like bigger people. I'll start with someone like the bigger people, but uh, Cecilia Chang, mm-hmm. she is this like super well-known restaurateur. Uh, mm-hmm. She passed away in 2020, but I actually got to meet her like maybe two months like before she passed, and I had always been like a huge fan of her and reading about her. Um, she was a hundred years old, and I was at an event with her.
0: What appealed to you about her?
1: Um, I just thought she was. Uh, can I say badass? I just thought she was like so bad. <laughs> I thought she was so badass for this. Like she reminds me of my grandma, but she immigrated to the United States when she was like thirty, and like built this like incredible like restaurant empire. And then at the event I met her at, it was like a lunar. It was right before the pandemic. Like my last event before the pandemic kind of shut everything everything down, and it was a lunar New Year event. And I, I I joke around about how, like, I'm a grandma and I need to go home early. Like, I can't stay that late. And so I, <laughs> my my partner and I, we left at, like, like, 10 o'clock. And she was still sitting at the booth talking to, I think, like, Michael Bauer and, like, all these other, like, fancy food people. Like, throwing back champagne. I was just like, God, like, I wish I had that energy at, like, 100 years old. Yeah. It just has this, like, incredible, just, like, inspiring and energetic vibe to her. That I really loved. And she was like always unapologet- unapologetically herself as
0: an Asian yeah. woman. And I loved it. That's pretty badass. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So she she's one of my, I guess, like inspirations. And then working in the architecture industry, um, it was, I had moments that I felt kind of difficult to work in it as like a kind of a younger Asian female. Um, but I had a couple of mentors that my project managers that kind of empowered me to kind of, I don't know, trust in my talents. Um, I have one project manager named Patricia Santino, and she was like born and raised or actually um, she lived in California like her most of her entire life. And she, I don't know, she just like taught me how to feel comfortable as like a, a woman of color in a professional industry where no one else looks
0: like you. How does California's geography influence or impact you or who you are?
1: I feel like there are moments where I forget that I live in California, especially when I spend kind of like days at the house or in our neighborhood. But then I'm always kind of reminded of like the grandeur and feel really grateful for living in California. Whenever I go to either like the coast or go on a hike where I have like an incredible vantage point and California and nature just like smacks me in the face like you are here you know my partner and I we have like a very like I think strong connection to Tahoe we've been to that area more than like any other part of California outside of like the San Francisco Bay Area we really love it there in any other season so Um, I love that. And then more locally to where we live, we have this one hike called Wildcat Canyon that has one of the most breathtaking views of the entire Bay Area. And it's so underrated because I feel like a lot of people in the Bay Area, they're like, we'll we'll go to like Mount Tam or like the the bigger hikes. But this is just like this great secluded hike in the East Bay that has cows everywhere. And it's like the, (laughs) the most incredible thing. And I feel really grateful that it's literally just 10 minutes from my house. I think that's a really cool thing about living in California, that you can like live in your regular bungalow, you know, with like just like normal town city life and then drive 10 minutes. And then you're at this incredible hike with cows everywhere in nature.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. How did you become interested in food, particularly writing and telling stories about food?
1: It's it's been a very long journey in a way. I I think food has always been a part of my life. Um, and it just has taken time for me to, like, accept it as, like, maybe, like, our chosen career path. Um, I, mm-hmm. I grew up in a Chinese-American restaurant family. My, my okay. grandparents immigrated to the United States in the late 60s with my mom and her four siblings. So it was, like, a big family that came over. Um, and a common career path for a lot of immigrants is working in the restaurant industry. And so that's exactly what my grandpa did. He was actually was like a professor and teacher before, but you know couldn't do that in the United States. So he taught himself how to cook and opened like a handful of restaurants over the years. And his very last restaurant before he retired, um, he picked it in like the, whole, like the town that my parents ended up living in. And I was born that same year. And so I grew up in that last restaurant for a little over a decade. Um, And so I spent a lot of time at the restaurant, um, like after school, it was like kind of like your daycare, like you go there after school, I was doing homework, like at the bar, uh, like helping out with carryout orders and stuff. And like, I I wish I was a kid at a time, but I was like, I wish I paid a little bit more attention to like what the cooks were doing in the back. But I was still like immersed in this environment where like food cooking for people making large quantities of food were just part of normal day life my mom is a really great cook too and so food was always really important um I ultimately decided to I thought about going to culinary school for a little bit and my family was supportive of, of that but I also have like a strong desire to be creative and make things with my hands and I kind of learned a little bit more about architecture. I was inspired by different architects and decided to study that instead. But even when I was in architecture school, I was like cooking for my friends with like the random scraps, like random ingredients that we had. I had a very hipster, slightly embarrassing supper club my senior year. And it wasn't until I moved to California and was working in architecture full-time, felt a little sad and kind of like uninspired working at my day job where I was like, I need another hobby. I created Eat Show Food and it eventually became this thing that is now my my real job, which is like very surreal.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what did you want to see in a food site that wasn't available to you? And how did you go about creating that?
1: I never really thought of the way that I grew up or my perspective on food as like totally unique in a way and that that was purely just because like I I didn't know what was out there Um, but when I started to share recipes on my blog and on my Instagram that were more catered to like my unique perspective as a new Californian Chinese American that grew up in the Midwest like there's not a lot (laughs) of people of that same I guess like path and I was trying to combine all these influences from all these different facets of my life, and I think that makes my recipes maybe a little bit more unique. Um, my recipes combine a lot of different facets of my life, being from California or living in California, being from the Midwest, being a Chinese-American. And I think that people are looking for the, that different kind of perspective in food. Um, not just like solely only californian or super authentic chinese food and i think having a combination of all these things was like really refreshing and so i found that recipes that kind of like were in that i don't know like in that category were really resonating for a lot of people and became like one of my more some of my more successful recipes on the blog and so that's kind of how i kind of created the I guess the brand or the vibe of like eat, show food, which is really just celebrating who I am and who a lot of people are uh, for food and all those different cultures. And so um, I also kind of channeled that energy a little bit into, into my cookbook because it's, it's, Chinese baking is also kind of a, a unique facet of Chinese American culture and Asian American culture that not that many people see. Uh, so I think I find myself just kind of sharing things that people don't realize about me and Asian
0: American food. So just to be clear, Eat Cho Food is a blog and an Instagram feed. Is there anything else that's associated with it?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, Eat Cho Food is just like my my internet presence. I contemplated just like being Christina Cho on the internet, which I easily could be. And I think people realize that that is my name. <laughs> um, but uh-huh. I don't know. There's like something kind of like punny and like I, I like Eat cho Food. So I just keep that as, as my website and my Instagram. I'm also on TikTok, but that's not like... I don't love being there, but I am there.
0: <laughs> yeah. What don't you love about TikTok?
1: Um, I think that there is something very, um, over the years, I feel like I've built a very kind of loyal community on my blog and on Instagram. Like people know me on there and I write in a way and also those platforms allow me to write in a way where I can share who I am and people get multi-dimensions of me um, on TikTok. They don't let you, I guess, show yourself as easily as like maybe other platforms do or maybe like I, I am working on like video content. I do enjoy it, but there's something about like the written word and like other visuals that I think kind of help build someone's character and like you learn a lot about them. And so I'm, I think with TikTok, like I'm still kind of like learning how to like share who I am on there and there's a lot of people that follow me on there but I feel like none of them know who I am which is weird
0: to me well there's a certain glamour I think most people associate with food Instagram which is you know everything just looks effortlessly delicious and even romantic you know very alluring very appealing and your feed is no exception but obviously a lot goes into making something look easy how do you achieve that what what's like what goes into a day's work for you
1: so finding recipes or something to share that is really easy and other people find really easy is actually incredibly hard. Um, and <laughs> there, I I feel like it's a lot of trials, like putting stuff out there and seeing what hits. Like I had one recipe that has gone, I guess, like viral on multiple platforms, and it's this recipe for. Uh, Cantonese style tomato egg and I had like no idea that it would get like millions of views I'm just like what is happening right now I thought that I, I I think I had like another recipe before them like oh people are gonna love it like it's so easy I can't even remember right now so it probably wasn't that great but um <laughs> but like it, I only got like a couple hundred like likes or whatever and this tomato egg recipe and it is really easy got like 7 million views or something. And so I feel like finding things that really resonate with people is oftentimes like a lot of luck. Um, But going back to your question in terms of like how all of this gets created and like my, my, like, I guess day to day, my day to days are pretty varied. Um, It's just, it's how my mind is kind of structured. Like I need specific days that are recipe testing days Um, And then another day that's totally kind of like, I spend an entire day like writing all my notes, writing head notes. Um, Another day that's like admin, because I I have a really hard time of like trying to do all those things within one day, because I tend to like jump around and not get anything done. And so um, like today, other than this uh, recording today is a recipe testing day. So after this, um, I, kind of look at my refrigerator and see what I have um, determine if I need to restock or if I have enough to kind of test the concepts that I want and then I start prepping everything and try to be as organized as I can Uh, and then when I cook the first level of when I develop a recipe I am just cooking I don't pre-write my recipe I know a lot of other recipe developers do that so that they have some sort of a game plan but I'm just I'm just doing it I take notes after about like so I want I did this first just naturally. Wow. Um that's just like I just I I just have to do that. If I pre-write something, I get like too caught up and it doesn't feel natural. Like I because I the way that I write my recipes, I want people to cook as naturally as possible from reading it, if that makes sense.
0: That is a very, very distinct and unique skill that you have because I mean it's like it would be like a composer like improving a violin solo, and then going back and writing it note for note. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to remember exactly what you played. And with cooking, I mean, I know that there's only so many ingredients that you have out, but still, like, you know, the measurements and the the times and the ratios, everything. I mean, gosh, I, that's an amazing skill you have.
1: <laughs> it's hard. Like, I have to be really... I like have good best practices. Like sometimes I'll forget to write my notes like right afterwards. And then the next morning or two days later, I'm just like, what did I do? You know? Um, But I I can always kind of like remember, it's almost like muscle memory. I can remember like, okay, I kind of did this because I always tested it like a a second and a third time just to really make sure it works. It's just getting like the first edition out there needs to be like really um, organic for me.
0: Got it. So Mooncakes and Milk Bread is your first cookbook. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And it's also the first English language cookbook dedicated to Chinese baking, or at least Chinese bakery cooking, if we're being really super specific. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that is true.
0: So how and why did you decide you wanted to focus on Chinese bakeries and baking?
1: So as a first-time cookbook author, um, I wanted to focus on something that I felt like there was like a void in terms of the cookbook landscape. Even now in 2022, I find it crazy that I had the opportunity to write a book on a topic for the first time.
0: Everything's been done. Yeah,
1: everything has been done. Um, But Chinese baking hasn't, uh, at least not on this scale. Um, And as I was writing the book, I was kind of reflecting on like how much baking and baking culture played a role in my love of food. Um, I, I first taught myself how to bake when I was like in middle school. I, I was like a big, I was a kid that like loved watching uh, Food Network and like the PBS like cooking shows. And so I was like really obsessed with trying to recreate like a chocolate cake or a cheesecake, but all, all these things were like the very like Americanized version of recipes that I would see other people enjoy and um, when I would go into the kitchen it was like the only time I ever had like peace and quiet in the kitchen because if I was going in there to make say dumplings or spring rolls I would have like multiple opinions in the kitchen from my mom or my grandma whoever was over telling me what I should do but when I was baking I was by myself forming my own like culinary opinions and I never really realized that until I was kind of writing this book and like, explain to people why I love to bake so much Um, and it didn't didn't happen upon me to like realize that I should focus on creating baking recipes that like represent my family and the things that they loved because we did love going to Chinese bakeries our entire lives Um, and seeing that that wasn't represented in any type of like major book or media was really shocking and I was like I should try to do it. And I found a publisher that also believed in that idea. Um, A lot of publishers, I think, were like, that's really niche. (laughs) And maybe not Mm -hmm. a lot of people would be into it. Uh, But now that the book has come out, I've realized a lot of people are into it. And it's something that I think a lot of people have been craving and wanting for a long time.
0: Yeah. And so what does distinguish Chinese baking from that of other countries or global regions, or even within Asia? Like, is it a matter of flavors, a matter of ingredients, a matter of specific techniques? What would you say?
1: I'll start off by saying that Chinese baking is very similar to all kinds of different baking, like European baking, American baking, and other styles of Asian baking. And I think the differences come from the nuances in the flavors and also kind of like the culture That surrounds a Chinese bakery. Um, When I think of a Chinese bakery, I'm thinking uh, there's different styles, but I immediately go to kind of the typology of uh, the bakery, the endless rows of bakery cases, like acrylic cases that have individual buns in there. You get a bakery tray and tongs, and you kind of like fill up your tray Mm -hmm. high with different types of buns. And this is kind of like a Cantonese style of Chinese bakery. My family's from Hong Kong, so that's. Like when we're, whenever we would go visit family there, we would always go there. And different Chinatowns had similar bakeries in the United States. Um, but these bakeries have so much, I guess like energy in them because they're such like, just like a coffee shop. Like they're just like part of people's like morning routines, part of when they celebrate with their families and pick up like a shiny fruit covered cake there. it's just It's just part of Asian American lives. And I think... That more than anything, more, more than maybe the use of like interesting flavors like red bean and matcha and like different fruits. Like I think the culture and like the culture, yeah, the cultural impact that these bakeries have really sets it apart from other from other bakeries.
0: Yeah, when I saw the the red bean paste recipe and there was a red bean cake, I believe, I was like, oh, we're definitely getting some different territory here. What are some of the California bakeries that appear in your book? I mean, who's doing the most, would you say, to keep this craft and tradition alive?
1: So one bakery that I focused on in my book, I I featured a few different bakeries across the United States, but the one that is tied to San Francisco is um, Eastern Bakery, and it's the oldest bakery. In uh, San Francisco Chinatown and Orlando, the owner there um, loves to talk about I think like his business and uh, the history of the the bakery there. They're kind of they're known for one their mooncakes and then also their coffee crunch cake, uh, which I had a slice of and it is excellent. It's kind of like a San Francisco thing. There's another bakery mm-hmm. there called Blooms that I don't think it's open anymore, but. Uh, a coffee crunch cake is like sort of a San Francisco thing and they have a version of it and it's really good. Um, but then I I also kind of like subtly talk, talk about the different bakeries and like dim sum takeaway places in San Francisco because I spent so much of my life there or my culinary life there, um, especially living in inner Richmond. So I talk about Good Luck Dim Sum, which is my number one place for grabbing kind of like casual style takeaway dim sum and dumplings Um, and a lot of people were like oh why are you talking about a dumpling place in, in a Chinese bakery but like the thing about Chinese bakeries is that like sometimes you can get dumplings and then also steamed buns and like cake all in one place and it's like amazing Mm -hmm. you get this Mm -hmm. like plethora of like flavors and everything and that's I, i love it so much um and i wanted to kind of explain that in in the book a little bit too that like a bakery in a Chinese bakery context doesn't have to, doesn't always look like what you think of like a French bakery. You know, like it, it, like I don't know, like restaurants in like Chinese culture are a little bit more like freestyle. You know, they're just serving food that they love, and right, that's why you can find right. all these different things. There's so many bakeries in San Francisco. There's like Harvest Wheatfield, Shanky. Um, pineapple king. It's just like living here. It's like if I grew up here, I probably would never have written a book about Chinese baking because I would just be like eating everything instead and never having a desire to make it myself. So
0: you mentioned earlier Blooms and the coffee crunch cake. Isn't there some debate over whether or not Eastern Bakery actually originated the coffee crunch cake and that when they went to Blooms first?
1: Yeah, there's like some controversy about that. And I can't remember what like Orlando, the owner told me, but I have heard from like other people that like I think a Blooms Baker ended up working at Eastern Bakery, but I don't want to get in trouble. I have no idea.
0: Okay, people can read more about it in the book to the extent we know anything at all. But um, I, I love that there is that potential influence, you know, where you know Blooms is no longer around, Eastern is, and that that particular um, you know signature item uh, still exists and thrives, you know, and people love it. You also, uh, write about the Phoenix bakery in Los Angeles. And, you know, earlier you were talking about the culture around Chinese bakeries. And I think maybe Phoenix bakery is, is one that has a culture and a community around it that, uh, is perhaps singular in California. Can you tell us a little bit more about that culture and that community?
1: Yeah, um, so Phoenix Bakery, just like Eastern Bakery, is the oldest, uh, is the oldest bakery or Chinese bakery in Los Angeles Chinatown. That was kind of a running theme with me because I had to do a lot of these interviews either like virtually or over the phone and. A lot of bakeries were like a little suspicious or like didn't really wanna talk about their business with someone that they didn't know, but the ones that have been around for a very long time and are really established are maybe like a little bit more open to talking about these things. And so that's how I was able to uh, speak with Kathy, Kathy Seppi, who is the daughter of the original owner and founder of Phoenix Bakery. Um, And talking to her, like, I just like, I learned so much more than what I thought I would get out of an interview about a Chinese bakery. Um, she kind of just told me about how Phoenix Phoenix bakery was one of the original Chinatown businesses. It had moved from where the original Chinatown was to where it is now, and how her father um, also started a uh, Cathay Bank, uh, which is one of the biggest like Asian owned, Uh, financial institutions right Uh, it, it was just really cool to hear about how her father started that in in this community of asian americans in los angeles and allowing this chinese community to kind of get some type of like financial independence in a way uh because for so long like I think especially in Los Angeles and California, where there was like maybe a a little bit of trauma for Asian or a lot of trauma for Chinese Americans living in California, being distrustful of their money with any other type of institution and how her father was able to create some type of network that they were able to like build their own wealth and trust their money with someone um and seeing how this how cafe bank has grown into like such a larger right. thing that any of them could had, had could even expect you know a chinese bakery can be more than a bakery it's like a Cultural institution, a starting point for a lot of people.
0: Right, and it, I mean, it, it, the Cathay Bank was founded in, in large part because the founders could not get loans from conventional banks, and so by by virtue of that, they went ahead and started their own. And obviously, like you just mentioned, the rest is history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and I I think that that's probably a similar story in a, in lots of different. Immigrant communities where you kind of like look inward for for that support either emotionally or financially um, And it's, it's just in- inspiring to see how something like that can grow into something bigger
0: What has your work on the blog and on Instagram and now your book revealed to you about California? That you found most compelling or even surprising
1: as I've been kind of working on each food I, I think I realized that like eat show food wouldn't be what it is unless I moved to California, and lived in the parts of California that I have. Um, I I talk a lot about living in Inner Richmond, and I don't think I realized until after I left Inner Richmond how impactful living there was. Um, I. Growing up in Ohio, I lived primarily in like a a Caucasian um, neighborhood and town where I was like one of the few Asian Americans there. Um, And I just kind of just accepted that as part of my life. That's just like who I was. I was like one of the few people that looked like me wherever I went. Um, But then when I moved to California and moved to inner Richmond, it was the first time in my life that I... Was able to walk down the street and the street meaning Clement Street. it's kind of the main drag of inner richmond and it was mm-hmm. the first time i was able to walk down the street and just see the majority of people living their lives look like me and hearing cantonese and other dialects of chinese just like freely spoken at the different businesses and restaurants and that is something that i had never experienced before and like when i when i was there i was like what is happening like it because I, I think for so long, I was kind of like compartmentalizing these two sides of myself where I was like leaning into like, my Americanness and as a kid, like assimilating and focusing on that. And then when I would be just with my family leaning into like my Asianness, And so I think having the opportunity to live in this incredible neighborhood in California was able to give me some type of resolve and feel confident embracing both sides of me. I think if I grew up in California, in some of these different neighborhoods, I would probably feel even more confident and be able to like fully embrace the Asianness and Americanness more than I am now. But uh, it's a thing I am continuing to work on through my food, in a way. With each recipe, I'm kind of trying to explore different facets of my upbringing and my life and trying to combine these things.
0: What would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces and... How can that challenge be surmounted?
1: I don't know how it can be surmounted, but I think the biggest thing that, at least that I see in California and the, like, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about just like the Bay Area is probably the unbalance of wealthy Californians and unwealthy Californians, to put it very, very simply. Um, it, I think coming from Ohio, where that imbalance is maybe like a little closer together, you know, there's like a normal middle class. Um, It was a little shocking coming out here and seeing the comparison dichotomy of like, so much unbelievable wealth, and so much despair within like a very beautiful environment. You know, it's very, very strange. And I consciously try not to forget about it. In a sense, I think that I, I I remember when I had to work downtown quite often and a lot of people just kind of like walk by and ignore someone that's like pass out on the street or a homeless camp or like all that stuff and just like just walk by it's like casual and just accept that this is like part of normal life. And I never want to be at that point in my life where I just like accept that this is part of my life. Um, so I don't know how to overcome this. Um, I I feel like a lot of times the people who are in the middle class or something like that are the ones that maybe care a little bit more about maybe trying to like fix these problems. But I think it's like a, it should be a collective effort that people should care about.
0: So, in your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, maybe back in Ohio or uh, anywhere, you're you're doing your work. What do you find they most misunderstand about California?
1: I think they tend to think that like life in California is constantly like perfect. <laughs> in a sense, you know, they're like. Um, especially like a lot of my family, like they see the things like I post on social media and things like that. Like, um, and that, that's for everyone in general, you know, like California on the internet is paradise, you know, and everyone Mm -hmm. just thinks that like life is easy. We only work four hours a day. We only work four hours a day and spend most of our time outside or like drinking kombucha or something like that. California is really expensive and you have to work really hard to be here. And I think a lot of people forget about that. Because they're they're just kind of more focusing on like the the pretty aspects about living here. So I think that that, that's what I, I don't know, I tried to kind of explain that a little bit more to people that might not understand my life here.
0: We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian past or present and why?
1: It's hard to pick one. I'm just going to say one off the top of my head because I was just talking about our shared favorite restaurant, but I really love the comedian Allie Wong. Uh, She (laughs) is from the San Francisco Bay Area, and she also loves Good Luck Dim Sum, and I just love everything that she is in. (laughs) Oh, I, okay. So um, when I first moved to San Francisco, I lived near the De Young Museum. And uh, it was like free. I don't remember what days it's free, but I went there a lot when it was free. It's just something to do. And I loved just like taking my time and looking at the Roof Asawa events. And she is a, I think she was born and raised in California, uh, no longer living, but she's a Asian American artist that I think her work is so iconic. At least as a Bay Area person, you can like you can see when a piece of art is inspired by roof or it is a roof piece, um, and so it, that kind of appeals to like my creative artist side. And I think she's a very inspiring Californian.
0: Christina Cho, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you. I had a great time.
0: All right, there you have it. Christina Cho, the author of Moon Cakes and Milk Bread and the proprietor of the Eat Cho Food blog and Instagram feed. She's great. I really appreciate her dropping in on such short notice as well as the help from Diana Fertita from Mona Creative for helping us get this on the book so quickly. Uh, Go team. Really appreciate that. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for helping make this show the success that it is. Keep sharing it. Keep listening to it. Keep subscribing to it. You know, we just couldn't do this without you. Well, we could do it without you, but (laughs) what's the point? (laughs) What what kind of fun is that, right? So uh, I really, really appreciate you. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Airstale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That'll get you a podcast in your inbox every Thursday morning and a roundup of cool weekend links, very, very cool California stories every Friday. That is totally free. You can also support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you want to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running, keep the headquarters cat fed, And as always, you can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. If you want to send love notes, hate mail, comments, questions, suggestions, anything else I haven't even thought of yet, I'd be most grateful. I always love hearing from folks. Please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, I would love it if you rated and reviewed it on Apple Podcasts. That does help new listeners find the show, and it's always nice to get some love on the Apple platform. So if you would do so, I would be most, most appreciative. That is a wrap on episode 21 from What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.